0: Uh, we've started a series a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Luke uh, launched us into this series on First Peter that we've been calling Living Hope. And my, my prayer is that over the last two weeks, you've understood more and more of why we would call it Living Hope. You're gonna see the theme of hope throughout the entire book of First Peter. And, and I love it, but I'm a little confused by it at times too. And it's not because hope is that confusing or crazy of a thing, but I think it's something we don't really understand. Here's what I mean. This morning when I got up, it was early. I was tired and I was thinking, I hope my car starts because I got to be there on time. Or, Or maybe it's something more like this. I hope that the pants that I ordered off of Amazon fit when they get here. And I hope I remember to return them when they don't fit on time before I lose out on all of that opportunity. See, this is the way we often use hope is as this really kind of light thing that means this to us. I really want that to be the case. I really want it to be that way. I really want to make sure that this happens. I hope this is what goes on. But then I read in scripture and I see this word hope tied to Jesus. And I feel like that kind of definition of hope isn't good enough because we're going to read today that there's something more to hope than just this idea of I really want it to be. In fact, there's something solid about hope that is different. So if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in 1st Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. We're going to finish that chapter and start chapter 2 today. And so you can follow along in your Bible. The if you don't have your Bible with you, the Verses are going to be up on the screen, or you can open up the Version app, hit more, hit events, and find Mitchell Berean on there, and you'll have all of the notes walking straight through the sermon that you can add your notes to and save for later to go back through. And I love that tool. I use it every week that I'm here because I want to remember what I'm learning and be able to grow in it. And so I would just encourage you, whatever method you want to use, follow along with us as we get into scripture. So 1 Peter 1.13. He says, therefore, I'm gonna stop there. We're one word in. But this is an important word. We always wanna ask about therefore is what the therefore is there for, right? That's the question we have to ask. And so I wanna challenge you to think back. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you've gotten to hear what the therefore is about. Because of everything that Peter has already written, we're gonna do something we're gonna respond in some way. And he's talking about the living hope that we have in Jesus. This is how he starts this whole letter off, talking about how God has sent his son who paid the price for us, for our sins, so that we could be restored in relationship with him that we were created for. And there is no other way but through him, and he has offered it freely to everyone, and all who believe can stand firm in that living hope. And because of that, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because of all this, we are to prepare our minds for action. I I love how he starts here. Because he's saying, hey, because of the hope, the living hope, all that God has done for you to display this to you, because of all of this, there's work to be done. There's things that we have to do. There's a response that we need to make. There's a kind of living that we need to exemplify. If we are part of this living hope, we must share in the responsibility that is coming as one in that. Prepare your mind for action. This isn't a living hope that we just sit in. It's one we move in. Prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded. I don't know if modern Christianity understands very well what sober-mindedness means. And here's why I think that's a problem for us is because we see two ends of the spectrum. One is this side that says, I read my Bible, I go to church, I do my devotions, I pray because it empowers me, it prepares me, it gives me all that I need so that I can live my best life in Christ, and it's about me. The other side of it, this is, this is the side, and I'll just say this, it's where we look at like what I'll call a false Christian optimism. And remember this, I am a diehard optimist. I love optimism. But there is a false side of this where I get so caught up on one end of the spectrum that I miss out on something that is important. And and here's the thing. The other end of the spectrum is where we dive into a false pessimism about being a Christian. My wife and I got to be part of a church for several years where we heard the same sermon every Sunday. It was the most encouraging sermon I ever heard. You know what it was? It is a real struggle to be a Christian. Literally for years, every Sunday, that's what it came to. No matter what passage we were at, it always came back to, it is a real struggle to be a Christian. It's not wrong. There is struggle. There is suffering in walking with Christ. Absolutely. But I was like, I think, there's, I think there's another side of this too. And so our tendency is when we feel this of going, it's such a struggle, it's so hard. But then we hear, oh, but there's this great side of Christianity that you can walk in and it's all about you and it empowers you and prepares you and gets you ready for everything that you get to experience We run to this a lot of times. But both sides rely on what he's saying is be sober-minded, be of sound mind, be somewhere in the middle where there's a reality check of what's going on, that there is struggle in Christianity, that there is purpose that God has for you and a plan, but they go together here. Be sober-minded. Don't be drunk on the optimism and don't be so broken in the pessimism that you miss out on the realism that's here in the middle. And here's the reality. There's a spiritual battle that's going on around us for the souls of people who are made to be with God and are separated from him. And they are headed and bound for hell. And we have a role to play in the midst of this battle. I need to realize that. I need to see that and be ready for action. Because if I miss that, I'm not participating in what we're gonna see Peter calling us to. I'm not participating in the hope that's there because that hope is there for a reason and given to us for a reason. And we are to set that hope fully on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns, we will understand more fully the grace that is given to us. Grace is a gift that we do not deserve and could never earn. And what that is, is the eternal life that God gives us through Jesus. It is an inheritance to not just receive life eternally, but to be part of his family, adopted and given the rights of sonship that we now get to live in the household of God as a co-heir with Christ. Christ. I would encourage you sometime this week, open up to Ephesians chapter one and read through all of the things that we receive in Christ because it says we have been blessed with every blessing in the heavenly realms. It's all given to us in Christ. This is an incredible thing that we will get to experience and it is part of the grace that has been given to us and we can set our hope firmly on this grace. It is not something that I really hope it's like that. I really want it to be that way. He says we can fully place our hope on this. Fully trusting the firm foundation of it. Why is that the case? Why can we fully trust it? Because what we're trusting is something that's been proven. I make a lot of promises. My wife's here, she could tell you I make promises. She could also tell you something that I don't want her to tell you, but the reality is this. I don't always fulfill my promises. I fail. I like to make promises because they sound good and I want to be a man of character. I wanna have integrity. I wanna fulfill what I've promised to do, but I fail and I fall short. And because of that, if I were to say, hey, I promise you this, even if my wife believes me and trusts me, there's always going to be some doubt that she hopes I will fulfill my promise. What's beautiful about the promises that God has given is he has a track record from the beginning of time of being fully faithful to every promise. Everything that he has promised, he fulfilled or has promised to fulfill. And because of what he's done, who he is, his character displayed for us, I can fully trust that what he has promised that is yet to come is solid. And I can have hope that's beyond just want to, but knowing And my hope and faith stand strong. You see, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the solidness of this. And my faith is in God making my hope a solid position to stand from. I wanted to spend this time looking at hope because what hope does in us is extremely important for believers. It's extremely important for the body of Christ to understand because it produces things in us. Paul talks about this hope in Romans in a couple of places that I want to look at. Romans fifteen four is one. He says, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have. Hope. These things that were written before that are still to come that we're awaiting on, we get to endure because of the encouragement of Scripture. Endure towards us. Our idea of endurance a lot of times is to be able to stand up in the midst of. But I, I want you to think of endurance in this way today. Endurance is like this I'm at mile 13 of a marathon. My legs feel like they're about to explode off my body. I know it's hard to imagine me running a marathon, it is for me too. It's hard to imagine this. But I'm at that point, and I decide to endure, not because I'm enjoying myself in the midst of the struggle, but because I know what waits for me at the finish line. There's a reward that's been promised. And the beauty of the race that we're running as believers is that the finish line is our king, our savior, waiting to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. There's a judgment that we will stand before him, and, and it is not a judgment of condemnation, but one of reward, these are beautiful things that are hopes for us at the end of the race and they make it worth enduring. And we see this truth because it's given to us and encouraged to us through scripture, through how God's word has laid it out clearly for us. And we are to hold to these things and be able to endure in hope because that's why he gave us these promises that we would have hope and endure. Romans eight twenty four through 25, Paul says, for in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. He's saying that hope is not what I already have received. My hope is in what I have promised still. So when we're talking about what we hold on to already, a lot of us put our hopes in what we already have. That's not real hope. That's just holding on with joy in it. And it's a good thing, but he's talking about, and Peter's calling us to, looking ahead to what is still promised. Because what I have does not always help me endure through to what I will receive. It's what I will receive that helps me push through and continue on the race. So I wanna challenge you as we look in this idea of living hope through this whole series to remember how solid and true and foundational hope is to our faith. Because when we can stand and understand and live out this hope, it produces fruit in us. I want to go through four specific fruits I see Peter lay out here that, that are produced as the result of us walking in hope and his spirit working in us. The first fruit that we see hope produce here is it produces holiness. Hope produces holiness. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The sense it is written part is a quote from Leviticus 1144 where God is talking to his people Israel, the nation of Israel, his chosen people. And he says to them, you're mine, you are to reflect me in this world. I am holy, therefore you must be holy. And Peter is repeating this to us saying, you are his chosen people, his royal priesthood. You are part of his family. You are to reflect him here. And he is holy, therefore be holy Okay, we understand the call to be holy, but do you really understand what it means to be holy? You may have heard this definition for holiness. It's the idea that you are set apart. That's what holy means, to be set apart. This is how we often like to translate this and apply it to our lives as we look and say, okay, I'm set apart. God has this very special purpose for me. I am so unique in how he's built me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This is absolutely true. And, and God has something special for me to do. And, and this is not wrong, but it's not the full picture. Here's the way we look at it. When I was growing up, my mom had this plate called the birthday plate. The birthday plate with this, It was this big plate that just said, it is your birthday around the outside of it. This was the most exciting plate in the world to have because it was set apart for one purpose and on your birthday, you were set apart. You were special. You received this honor. This is the way we like to look at it, but I wanna challenge you on this, that this is not the full picture of holiness specifically and especially within the body of Christ because this call is not to you as an individual alone. We are his chosen people. We are to be holy. Think of it this way. I have a plate that when I go home for lunch and I wanna eat something quickly, I'm gonna throw in the microwave. I have plates that I'll pull out and I'll use these plates. They're plastic, they're simple, they're microwave safe, and I'm gonna throw them out there. But if my in-laws are coming over and I'm preparing a dinner for them, I'm not setting out my microwave plates. I'm getting out the set of nicer dishes so I can get the table looking nice because there's a different purpose For those, but they come in a set for a purpose to be used. This is the picture of the body of Christ being set apart for us. And I want you to think about that side of it that you are not just an individual special thing, you are part of a whole body, a whole family for a purpose that is not your purpose, but His purpose. For Him to use in the way that He sees fit, that brings him the most glory. Our issue with this a lot of times is that we struggle to live lives that reflect that well. God has this incredible meal, this incredible steak to serve up on the plate of his holy people. And yet we often are dirty dishes that misrepresent what that meal is supposed to look like to the world around us. And so I wanna challenge you in holiness to understand what that looks like. 2 Corinthians 7, one says this, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We are to cleanse ourselves from everything that defiles our body and spirit. This is to get rid of our sin, to put it aside. I'm not talking about living in sinless perfection, but I am challenging you to think of this way. First John tells us that the believer in Christ, the true follower of God, one who actually is found in him will not continue to sin. And I believe that statement is this, will not continue to sin freely without the conviction of the Holy Spirit who now dwells in them because they have been bought at a price. Their body is not their own. They are to honor God with their body and he does not just allow us to walk in our sin anymore, but calls us out of it. And I I challenge you, he calls us out for our benefit. He doesn't call us out that we wouldn't have enjoyment, that we wouldn't have freedom. He calls us out to give us true freedom in the purpose that he knows is greater that he has for us that will fulfill us in ways our purposes never can. This is the call to holiness that we are to be holy and set apart to reflect and represent our Father, God, who is holy and set apart. For his purpose, we are to be used. And in this, we see hope producing holiness, and holiness, in turn, produces obedience. You're gonna see how a lot of this fruit is tied together. In fact, all of these are tied together because each one helps strengthen and produce each other. And I I love that obedience is in here. We're gonna see in 1 Peter 1, 17 through 18, where it's at. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. We're gonna talk in just a second about that ransomed thing and, and what we were ransomed by because it continues into the next section. But I want you to see the beginning of this verse verses here. And if you call on him as father, you may not have seen the word obedience here. And that's because Peter set up the theme of these verses, just a couple verses before where he says, so as obedient children, if we're calling him father, we're calling ourselves his children and we are to be obedient to him. It says, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. What does it mean through the time of our exile? I didn't know we were in exile. Here's here's the reality. If we have our faith in Jesus, God has brought us into his family, his kingdom. We have a new citizenship and we don't carry dual citizenship. Our citizenship in the world is gone. We are now citizens of heaven, but guess what? We're still here. I'm in exile, I am apart from and cannot get to the kingdom that is my home right now, but I am called to live and conduct myself in a way that reflects the values and purposes of that kingdom, not this one anymore. And in order to do that, I have to walk in obedience to the commands of that king. Not out of fear of punishment. This is our problem a lot of times is we have this view of fathers that they are not always good and loving. Many of you have struggled through times with a father who was more abusive and more aggressive with punishment over things whether you obeyed or not. And it's caused you to have a skewed view of God as a good loving father. Father, But here's a reality. A loving father disciplines his children. Hebrews tells us that God only disciplines those he loves and calls his own children. And so even being disciplined by God is him marking us and calling us and declaring us as his own children. He has brought us in and this is his declaration of that. And it is an expression of his love not to punish but to guide us back into what fullness of life really looks like with him. The best possible thing for us. And this is what God desires. And we are to live in fear. Well, what does that mean fear? I think about my kids. My kids, they fear me a little bit. And and there's good and bad to that. As a dad, it's kind of weird sometimes when your kids seem like they fear you. But here's what I love about it is that My kids don't fear that I'm going to hurt them. They don't fear that I'm going to attack them or punish them in this wrong way. My kids fear the idea that they're going to do something disobedient against me that misrepresents and dishonors me and how I'm going to respond to that. You see, this is the thing is my son, Micah, I love Micah but he will go somewhere and he will uh, be with a group of friends and they'll do things that he goes, I'm not supposed to do that. My dad said, I am not supposed to do that. And he'll come home and he'll go, dad, they wanted me to do things that you don't want me to do. And I couldn't do them. I didn't want to do them. And he's trying to show me that dad, even when you weren't there, I wanted to honor you. I wanted to follow what you called me and told me to do out of a fear of, doing the wrong thing that I've told him not to. This is what we have with God. We have a loving father who we want to represent well. And if I'm living disobedient to that father, I'm living as if he's not loving. I'm living in a way that reflects wrong upon him, that dishonors him. And my fear should be in dishonoring the one who has done nothing but show me love. That's what it means to live in obedience To God is to show him the love that he's shown you reflected back to him. Jesus talks about in Luke 6, 46, where he, he says this, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why are you claiming to be in submission to me, claiming that I am the one who's in charge and the authority over your life, and then you disobey me? Why are you calling him father if you're not going to obey the father who has done nothing to to bring about your disobedience. This is the call on believers who've been brought in as children is to be obedient to him because in our obedience, guess what happens? We step further and deeper and stronger into holiness. Holiness that we're striving for calls us to obedience and obedience that we walk in strengthens the holiness and together it produces the next fruit that comes from hope, love. Hope through this produces love. 1 Peter 1, 19 through 22 says this, but with the precious blood of Christ, this is what we were ransomed with, not with the, uh, uh, the feudal things that we inherited, not with perishable things of silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. heart there's two specific sides to the love that is produced within us that we see laid out here our obedience to God and our holiness that we're walking in the hope that gives us reason to do this produces first a love for God why do we love God well his word tells us we love him because he first loved us this is why, is, is because he has shown us love and we learn through that to love him back. But how do we show that love to him? John 15, 10 tells us clearly, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. It is through our obedience to God that we show our love to God. We follow what he said and we walk in his love, reflecting that love back to him. It's an incredible thing to see here and it continues. 2nd uh, John 1:6 says this, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you've heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. This is how we show him love is by walking in obedience and this is what obedience produces in us is love for God. Fruit bearing fruit as we walk in it. But it's not just a love for God that's produced in us. Peter gets into this idea that there is also a love for fellow believers. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. As our obedience purifies us, as we walk into holiness through obedience, we are to love one another. And the first love that he says is a brotherly love, a phileo love. It's where we get Philadelphia from, the city of brotherly love. It's this idea of love that is based in the fact that I have likeness with you. I'm one of five kids in my family, and I have likeness with them. We're from the same family place we have we even look like each other quite a bit we sound like each other i got to spend some time with my younger brother john this week and the whole time we were together people kept coming to us saying you guys are the same person because we look alike we sound alike coming around a corner you wouldn't know which one of us is talking and, and it's fun to have that. And I love my brother and there's a likeness that's there, but I want you to understand something. This is a call to us as believers. We have likeness amongst each other because of what Jesus has done in Christ. We are now one family and have likeness that is his, that he brings into us. We are made in his image. We are to see each other in that, that we are to walk in love of each other. Here's something else to understand about phileo love though, brotherly love. It can be displayed anywhere in the world by anyone. This is common love. This is a kind of love that is not unique to believers. And and so it's interesting because I look at this, I say, I'm supposed to have this solid hope that is different than anything else in the world. I'm supposed to walk in obedience and holiness that sets me apart from the way the world is. I'm supposed to love just like the world does? That sounds... Weird, and, and here's the thing, there is a beauty to that love, but Peter doesn't stop there. He says, you're called to brotherly love, comma, so love one another. This second love that he uses goes from phileo love to agape love. And agape love is different. Agape love is the love that's used when, when uh, in 1 John, John writes, this is those who know God know love because God is love. Love, this kind of love. This is the same love that says, for God so loved the world. Agape love, you may have a definition of it that says something like this, unconditional love. And there is truth to that. It is unconditional, but it goes a step further and we see it played out here, especially in the call to have it for one another. It's not just unconditional love, it's sacrificial love. I will unconditionally sacrifice of myself for the sake of those who I love around me. I will give up of myself. I will consider them to be of more importance, more value than me for their sake and for his glory. This kind of love is a love that only comes from God because it is a love that only he can have. And it is not a love that we develop, but one that he shows through us as we submit and walk in him. But this is the love that we are called to have. We love each other because we're in likeness to each other and we love each other out of a choice to sacrifice of myself, my opinions, my feelings, my desires, my purposes for his purposes for you. That is the love that is developed through hope. This is a very difficult thing for us because I'm just gonna tell you, I don't always like other believers. Sometimes they hurt me, they frustrate me, they annoy me. Sometimes they are just flat out weird. And I don't always like them. But here's a reality is I am called in obedience to love. And when I remember that it is not a love that I can produce, but only that God can through me, I only need to be in submission and obedience to him. And he helps me walk through this when I don't feel it. Because unconditional love is not of my ability, but only of his through me. And so I wanna encourage you, it's not an excuse to, well, only God can do it through me, so if I don't love them, I don't love them. We are called to continually strive towards this love that reflects on one another that reflects for one another and that reflects his love for them and for each other. This is the love that we're called to. And if we miss this, we miss out on the next fruit. The last fruit that we see Peter talk about here that is produced from the hope that we have is it produces unity. If I don't have this kind of love being developed and shown for other believers, I will not have unity with other believers because what unites us cannot just be a likeness. We have to be united by something deeper and stronger than that. 1 Peter 1, through 2, 2 says this. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like, glory like the flower of grass. The grass, grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, I love so's because it's just the same as therefore, because of, so because you have this unity together in the fact that you've been born again, that you've been born of an imperishable seed, because of that, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Because of what he's done for us that brings us together as one body Because of the obedience we are walking in, the holiness we're pursuing, the love that he is developing and showing through us for each other, because of this, we are to put away all malice. What is malice? It's the evil thoughts and actions that I would do or have that desire or attempt to destroy someone else. Malice is not something that we always deal with, but I will challenge you on this. We deal with it more often than we'd like to admit. And I wanna just encourage you on this. If you are feeling malicious intent towards other believers, this needs to be something that you really battle through and not just allow to grow and continue. Because you will never find unity with malice being freely running in your heart. You will never find that. We are to put away malice. We are to put away uh, all deceit. Deceit, we know lying. We understand the lying side, but there's a manipulative side of deceit as well where I'm twisting things in order to make my purposes come about. And this happens within the church so often. It's consistent and constant that there's so much deceit that goes on. And so I wanna just challenge you to think through how you're handling yourself with other believers in your interactions, in your serving, is it to benefit you in the way that you're doing it? Are you manipulating and twisting or, or deceiving in just enough way that it brings either people to your team or gains you things or are you sacrificially loving the body of Christ, not worried about what it gives you, but remembering that this is what you are to give out of your love? We are to put away hypocrisy. Did you know that hypocrite is the number one word used outside of Christianity to describe Christians all over the world? They claim to believe this, but they live this. This is horrible. That's not what we want to be known as. Yet, it's kind of what we do. We claim these things over here until it doesn't suit us. And then we're going to do this. I want you to think of it like this. If... If I stood up here, I'm preaching God's word to you and telling you I need you to trust me on what it says, read it with me, look, and I'm explaining it out to you in this way, but then I step outside and I start mistreating people, talking in ways that are completely contradictory to what I just said. Are you gonna trust me as a brother in Christ? Absolutely not. This is the problem is that for some of us, our Sunday faith doesn't reflect into our Monday faith. And the people that we work with would be shocked that we are claiming to be a Christian. Our families are shocked that we show up on Sunday and look a certain way there because in the car on the way here, we weren't living that clearly. And I'm not, again, not calling for perfection. That's not the call because that's not what we're seeking. But we need to not be hypocrites to each other. I need to be trustworthy to my brothers and sisters in Christ. That means If I claim to believe what his word says, I need to follow what his word says and admit when I failed to do so and it's caused hurt or pain or struggle for other believers. I need to be willing to live with integrity and not hypocrisy. We're to put away all envy. Envy we understand it's that jealousy that drives us where I have somebody has something that I want and I grow in a bitterness a hatred even towards them because I want it and no, I don't get it. We're not to have this. This isn't the way that we're supposed to be driven as believers to one another. This next one says, and all slander. You know why I think this is the toughest one for any believer to deal with? It's because this is the sin that I think in the church feels the best. You know why? Why? Because when I get to express what I feel about somebody else, even if it's true, but it paints them in their reputation in a bad light, and I get to express this to someone else, what often happens is this, is they go, yeah, you know what I heard about them? And suddenly I feel justified in where I am. We like slander, we like gossip because it's easy and it doesn't feel very convicting when everyone else is joining with me in it but slander destroys the body. Slander is when I am working to deface or destroy the character of somebody else. And within the church, it has no place. We need to be better about this. To not be those who easily and quickly for our own justice seeking slander others that they would get on our team that's not the call of believers that's not what reflects the holiness of God and if we're missing it here as the church we're definitely missing it outside and that matters because we are to look different and it reflects in a specific way John thirteen thirty five. Jesus says this By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. We cannot be loving one another in a way that reflects as his disciples in this world around us if all I'm doing is constantly slandering my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Can't do it. You cannot live two lives in that. It is one or the other. And again, I'm going to say this even if what you're sharing is true, you are not to share it. Because it doesn't matter if it's true. If it's slander, that's not what you're called to. If you have an issue with somebody, don't go talk to somebody else about it. Go talk to them about it out of love and to pursue unity because this is to be our response. Ephesians 4, one through three says this, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, eager to maintain unity. That means I'm excited and passionate about the unity that I'm seeking after with other believers because it's what brings us together in this hope. And I will eagerly pursue this, which means I'm gonna have to give up what would feel good. I'm gonna have to give up my pursuit of justice, trusting that God and his word declares that justice is his and he will bring it about. That's not mine to pursue, but I am called to pursue unity. And lovingly, I need to go and deal with that, with the person instead of deal with 30 other people about that person. Slander is not a characteristic of believers. And we need to battle this because when we do, and the opposite of this is we we treat ourselves like newborn infants longing for pure spiritual milk because it helps us to grow into the salvation that we claim. We grow up and start looking mature like the body of Christ when we long for what is pure and clean and nourishing to us, which is God's word. And this unity is fed through God's word. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That's a hard verse. For a church, I appeal to you that there be no divisions, that all of you agree, that you be of the same mind and same judgment. That is intense to me. But how do we find the same mind and the same judgment that would give us this unity? Well, we find it through the same source. You see, We find it in the Word of God. The truth that's there is what unites us. Our typical viewing of the Word of God in our modern time is to do something called eisegesis, it's the idea that I read into the Word. I take my circumstances, my opinions, my feelings, and my perspectives, and they are the lens through which I read God's word. And it will help me walk in those things or solidify them. And God's word is going to fit what I feel it should fit. Now, none of you are looking saying, well, that's the way that I want to read it. Because you listen and you go, well, that doesn't sound right. Because it's not, but it's typical. It's typical. Bible studies typically ask this question. It's not a bad question, but I don't know if it's the right question. This is the question we ask. So you read our passage this week. What did it mean to you personally? What did you feel reading that? What did you get out of that? It's not a bad question when we understand that it is not there. Scripture is not written that I would get what I want out of it. You see, we're called not to eisegesis, which is about me, to exegesis. Instead of to read into, exegesis means to read out of. It means I will take God's word and through that lens, I will view my opinions, my perspectives, my feelings, my circumstances. And I will allow his word to speak into how I am to respond in all of them. This is the call of believers. And when we long for pure spiritual milk, God's word to be our source of nourishment that sets us up to walk in what he's called us to, it changes our response and it changes our ability to be of the same mind and judgment for unity. It is not always easy, but it is what we're called to. And we are to eagerly pursue this. The only way we do it is by going back to God's word and instead of asking, what did it mean to you? We ask, what did it say? What does it mean? Because it's not to me. It has purpose and meaning for each and every one of us, but its main purpose is always going to unite us. It means that the Bible's interpretation doesn't change from person to person, opinion to opinion, circumstance to circumstance. It is solid. And it is to change our opinions, circumstances, and feelings, to be aligned together and aligned with God's heart. When we can grasp hold of all of this, we can walk together in unity, in obedience, in love. Pursuing holiness because of the hope that we have in Christ. But as we wrap this passage up, here's something that really is important. All of this only matters for believers. It only matters and applies for believers. There is zero point in pursuing holiness, in in walking in obedience to what God's word says in trying to seek unity with, other, with, with people in church and, and trying to love other people apart from God because it doesn't happen and there's no purpose there. 1 Peter 2, 3 tells us this, if, again, if, this has to do with everything that's been read, all of this only matters if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. I love this verse. We live in a world that tells us that the Lord is a bitter taste because he wants to confine you. He wants to trap you. He wants to hold you back from the experiences that would be so good for you. He wants to destroy things that that you should be pursuing and building up. And this is the lie that so many of us believe. I spent 14 years walking in a sinful pattern, seeking out things from the world that it told me I would be fulfilled by, that it told me I would find fullness and freedom in. And you know what I learned is that every step I took into it was like adding another chain to my imprisonment because what the world is telling us about God is a lie. I then have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And when I took the risk of boldly approaching God and confessing my sin and trusting that as his word says, he would forgive and cleanse me of my unrighteousness, when I came freely to him through Jesus, I found true freedom, not a confining cell. I found hope, not just a want. I found joy that is lasting. I have found peace that is beyond my understanding and it is all through Christ. If you're here today and you have not yet tasted and seen that the Lord is good, I wanna invite you to do that today by simply putting your faith in Jesus Christ who died in your place, paying the price that you owed for your sins, who God raised from the dead and has now offered you new life that is eternal through if you're here and you have not done that I don't want you to leave without getting your questions answered in room 103 out here just out these doors there's going to be some people that are there that would love to talk to you and answer these questions I'm going to be out in the lobby I would love to talk to you about this this is the most important thing for you and if you're here and going I feel like God really wants me to do this I want you to respond to him Don't ignore it, don't put it off. I'll just tell you, if you wait 20 minutes, the lines at the restaurant will be shorter. So get your questions answered before you go. Don't let anything stop you from finding out the truth that the Lord is good. For those of you that are believers here who have already put your faith in Christ, we have an opportunity today to stand in unity. God gave the church ordinances of baptism that brings us in and communion that we stand together in remembrance of what Jesus has done. But I want to challenge you before we take communion today to understand something. This is not an individual act. It is an act of unity that the whole body is called to together in participation, unified under the fact that Christ has died, his blood was shed, his body was broken for us, and we will stand in remembrance to represent that. If you're here today and you're finding that you have things that are stopping you from unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ, as you come to take communion, I ask that you leave those things before you partake in unity. Put those things aside and be willing to walk in the truth that is reflected in what He's done for you and to live a life that reflects that truth back to your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're here and realizing that you have malice and bitterness and anger and hatred towards other believers that are here with you, before you come and participate in an act of unity with them, go and resolve with them. Don't come to worship God at His altar with bitterness and hatred towards your brothers and sisters in your heart. If we're gonna stand unified in this ordinance, let's stand unified. So I challenge you before you just come and take communion, really process through where you're at and what you need to do to become one who reflects what God's word has called you to. Not perfection, but an understanding and a willingness to walk in sacrificial love giving up myself, my way, my opinions, my feelings, my perspectives for the sake of unity with my brothers and sisters who I want to love as Christ loves me. Communion is a great opportunity for unity. And I'm excited to celebrate that with you, to remember that. First Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is our opportunity to proclaim what he has done together in unity as his body, worshiping and remembering him, giving him the honor and glory he deserves. And I invite you. To join and do that today, I'm going to pray, and then as you're ready, you can come and take communion here at the front, or we have tables in the back, but let's do this together in unity and remembrance. God we thank you for who you are, for what you've done, for giving us your word that challenges us, that calls us, God, to growth, that calls us to something deeper, that calls us to not live as people of the world, but as your body. God, would you help us to live set apart lives? Not, God, for our own individual purposes and fulfillment and empowerment, but, God, for your purpose and glory. Help us, God, to be grown into this. Challenge us where we're not growing and maturing. And, God, challenge us by, challenge us by your word, God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to die in our place, to unite us together as one family in you. God, help us today as we remember that in communion to reflect on the unity that is brought from such a great background of diversity because of what you have done and nothing that we could earn or achieve on our own. God, I thank you thank you for the challenges of your word and God I pray that if there's anyone here who has not yet put their faith and trust in Jesus that you would draw them to yourself God making today the day of salvation God as we remember what you've done for us through Jesus his death his sacrifice on our behalf help us God to reflect you well it's in Jesus name we pray